Let me invite you to take your Bible and turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a blue one right in front of you in the seat. And I believe it's on page 20 in those Bibles. And if you're just joining us, we are, what we like to do here is we like to work through whole books of the Bible, or at least large sections of them. Uh, we just go passage by passage, because we think this helps us understand the whole counsel of God. We don't want to just know the greatest hits, the things that we all run to. We want to know everything that God has said. Because we believe that everything he's given us is what we need for life and godliness. So this morning, our journey to find all that he's told us brings us to Genesis 20. So I'm going to read that. invite you to follow along in your Bibles. Hear the word of the Lord. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She's my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, She's my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart, in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You've done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought, there's no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. This is the word of the Lord. Well, when we read this passage, I'm wondering if any of you felt a strange sense of deja vu. 
As we're reading, you're like, wait a minute. Abraham pretending his wife's his sister? And then she gets taken by another man? Yeah, and then God saves the day. Where have I heard this before? Or maybe, just maybe, you felt that sense of what I call awkward compassion when you're watching someone maybe read the wrong thing in a group setting or say the wrong lines in a play and and you feel so uncomfortable for them and you thought, oh, poor pastor, he forgot we already talked about this passage. This is so uncomfortable. Fear not, we are not in the wrong place. But yes, this story is incredibly similar to what we saw back in Genesis 12. Yes, Abraham did the same thing then. Yes, it led to the same problem. And yes, God rescued him then also. So why is there another story so similar to that first one? I mean, was this really necessary? Couldn't we have shortened our Bible by like one chapter and been just fine? To that, I would say... It is God's kindness to us that this story is included in our Bibles. Why? Because it teaches us about two things that we need to know. It teaches us about the repeated inconsistency of God's people and the repeated consistency of God's promises. And we see that over and over again. Now, studying this week... I had to laugh because some, some more liberal scholars, liberal theologically, try to argue that because this story is so similar to Genesis 12, there really, there could only be one event. I'm sure there was one story and they kind of changed some details and we have two tellings of it in our Bible. They say that because they just cannot imagine that Abraham would actually do the same thing again. They, they can't fathom that his faith would fail the same way. And that he would stumble into the same sinful behavior again. They said, no way. But if you are a follower of Jesus, I suspect you can not only imagine that happening, you've experienced it firsthand. Haven't you? Don't you find yourself failing to trust God in the same ways and going back to the same sins again and again? Ever find yourself doing something and then saying, can't believe I did that again. Well, guess what? This passage is in our Bibles for people like you and me. It's here to teach us about our persistent sins and God's sovereign promises. And I'm going to I'm going to give you a spoiler. I'm going to give away the ending now. God's sovereign promises are stronger than our persistent sins. As we'll see here, God will fulfill his promises and bless his people in spite of our ongoing struggles and besetting sins. So here's how we're going to break down our passage this morning. If you want to go ahead and put up our outline, it centers around two conversations. That's in Numbers 2 and 3. But before that, we've kind of got a setup and then an outcome. So here's what I'm saying. In verses 1 to 2, we see the same old sin. And then in verses 3 to 7, we see our sovereign God. In 8 to 13, we get some sorry excuses. And then in 14 to 18, we see surprising grace. Okay, so that's where we're going this morning. So let's pick up the story in verse 1. There we read this. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev 
and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. Okay, so once again, we have our friend Abraham on the move, right? He's, he's a pilgrim. That's what he does. He moves. Now it says he's from there. Well, where is from there? Well, most likely this is the Oaks of Mamre that we saw back in chapter 18. That's where he was living when the, the three men showed up at his tent. But from there, he sets out. He heads south, just like he did back in chapter 12. And in fact, if you look back at chapter 12, the language between 12 and 20 is strikingly similar. In both chapters, it says Abraham journeyed. Both chapters it then says he went toward the Negeb. In both chapters, it says he sojourned in a new place. So what we can tell right away is the author, he's doing that on purpose. He's saying, I'm going to say the same things in the same way so that you can't avoid thinking back. I want you to remember the last time. And as we continue reading, you see, okay, the similarities aren't done. They keep coming. Look at verse 2. Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Now, if you had never read the Bible, and this was just the first place you started, this would sound pretty cryptic and confusing. Like Abraham said of his wife, she's my sister. What what do I make of that? It would if we didn't have the background of chapter 12 to help us know what's going on here. What we see, who've been following along with Abraham, we see that he's up to his old tricks, trying to pass off his wife as his sister. Now, we have to ask, why would he do this? Why would he try this same thing again? After all, since the last time he tried this, right, a lot has happened since the last time Abraham pulled this stunt. Since last time, didn't God make a covenant with him? A covenant to guarantee that he would be the father of a multitude? Hasn't God just recently visited him in person and confirmed that promise to provide a son through Sarah? Even put a date on that promise, say this time next year? So if Abraham's had all that happening, why would he fall back into acting the same old way? Well, probably it's because Abraham has just moved to a new place. His normal life is all off kilter. There's lots of uncertainty, things he doesn't know. He's facing change. He's walking through a time of transition. And when you and I face transition, what often comes with transition? Temptation. Temptation to fear. Temptation to worry. To doubt. How, how, how is this new situation going to work? Will everything actually be okay? There's so many things that could go wrong. What if this happens? Or, or what if that doesn't happen? Haven't you found this to be true in your own life? You move to a new place. You change jobs. Maybe you change schools. You see relationships change. You you add a new friend to the mix or a friend moves away. Your family grows with a new child or your family shrinks through the loss of a loved one. And suddenly, with these changes, your stability is shaken. Things feel less certain. They feel more frightening. And times of transition become prime times for temptations to fear and doubt. Well, Abraham is no different here. Remember, he's, he's a man just like you and I. Now, we might expect more from him. After all, he knows God. He has promises. He trusts God. 
He's been counted righteous through faith in God, and yet in spite of all that he knows, his faith falters. See, Abraham's problem here is not intellectual. He'd have no trouble passing a quiz on the fundamental doctrines about God. If we passed that out this morning and Abraham was here, he'd probably get 100. Like, checked all the right boxes. What Abraham has trouble with, though, is applying what he knows about God to the difficulties he faces in his day-to-day life. Isn't that where we tend to struggle as well? I felt that this week. I will tell you that I have no trouble believing that God is sovereign when I'm reading my Bible. When I'm by myself reading my Bible, no questions. Amen. God is sovereign all day, every day. But you know when I struggle to believe it? When my car breaks down. Again. (laughs) There's unexpected expenses. There's complications for my schedule. There's stress. Will I let my knowledge of God's sovereignty shape how I respond then? I know it, but what about in the particular circumstances of my day-to-day life? What about God's goodness? My guess is if you were a follower of Jesus, we would all stand up and heartily say, Amen, God is good. But what about when the doctor gives us bad news? What about when things at work are suffocating? What about when people we love are hurting? See, there's a difference between knowing truths about God and actually applying them to our lives. As I thought about it this week, it's like this. It's like squeezing a bunch of chocolate syrup into a glass of milk, right? that's all you do, if you just let it sit on the bottom of the glass and take a big gulp, you won't taste any chocolate, right? It's in there. Like you, you saw yourself put it in. You can see it sitting on the bottom, but you don't taste any of it. But if you stir it up so that it mixes all throughout the milk, every sip you take is flavored by the chocolate. In the same way, When we only know truth about God, but don't actively apply it to our lives, it might be in us. You might have knowledge in you. You might say you believe this, but it's just sitting dormant in our hearts, and it never comes out when we encounter challenging circumstances. But if we apply the truth we know, and we work it into our hearts, and it gets all mixed up into the very fiber of who we are, no matter what you encounter, when you bump up against it, What comes out of us will be flavored by the truth we know. And here in verse 2, Abraham's faith in God is sitting on the bottom of the glass. He has it, but it's not flavoring the way he lives. Because he's afraid, he responds by running to his same old sin of trying to take control instead of trusting God. Rather than relying on God to take care of him, he relies on his own efforts and his own ideas. And as we see, once again, it leads to disaster. Sarah is taken by King Abimelech to be part of his harem. And once again, the promises are in jeopardy. These promises to make Abraham a great nation, a father of a multitude of peoples. It's all going to come, it's all going to start through one son. 
He's already been told his name. He's going to be called Isaac. He's going to come through Sarah. He has all these promises, and yet they're in jeopardy now because Abraham stumbles into the same old sin. Now, at this point, things look like they're spinning out of control. I'm sure they felt that way to Abraham. They had been so good, right? They'd been going well. Abraham had been trusting the Lord. The promises were getting closer. He'd been a man of prayer in the last couple chapters. But now, now everything's in chaos. I mean, Sarah, his wife, is with another man. She's with the king. This could literally ruin everything. But then we come to verse 4. Verse 3. I take that back. Come to verse 3. And two of the best words in the Bible. But God. Over and over again in the Bible, God's people face impossible situations and then come those two words that change the calculus of everything. But God... Things are a mess. Things are falling apart. I've made a disaster in my life. There's no way out of this. Everything's lost. Oh, no. But God. So look at verse 3. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now, I don't know about you. I mean, sometimes I have some, some good dreams Sometimes I have some, some bad dreams. This was not a good dream for Abimelech. God shows up and says, you're dead. Okay? I don't care what age you are. That's when you wake up and you scream for your mommy. Okay? <clears throat> now, why, was, why did God tell him he's a dead man? Because he's taken another man's wife. Now, as this conversation between God and Abimelech unfolds, there's going to be several things I want us to notice. And the first one is right here. <clears throat> notice how seriously God takes adultery. He shows up and tells this guy who was going to be with another man's wife and says, you're a dead man. This is really important for us to see and emphasize, I think, especially after last week in Genesis 19, seeing God's judgment against homosexuality. Because this, coming on the heels of that, reminds us homosexuality is not the only sexual sin that God judges. God cares deeply about marriage and about sexual purity. Hebrews 13 reminds us, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Remember last week, I pointed out that there's a passage in 1 Corinthians 6 where there's a list of people, it says, who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we, we focused in and saw how those who practice homosexuality are on that list. But guess what? So are adulterers. Friends, God is the giver of every good gift, including sex. And therefore, he has the sole authority to tell us how that gift is to be enjoyed. And he is absolutely clear that it is only to be enjoyed between one man and one woman within the covenant of marriage. And God takes any sexual activity outside of marriage very seriously. Just ask Abimelech. Okay, but verse 4 makes clear that Abimelech 
has not yet been with Sarah, right? He says, I, I haven't touched her yet. He, and he says, I had no idea she was married. So he pleads his case to the Lord. And I want you to look at the question he asks. Lord, will you kill an innocent people? What's his focus? Do you hear it? It's on God's justice. Just like Abraham praying, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Abimelech bases his plea on the fact that God will do what is just. And did you catch the fact that he's not just afraid for himself? God says, you're a dead man. And he doesn't say, God, will, will you kill an innocent man? It's not what it says, right? Will you kill an innocent people? Abimelech rightly assumes that his sin is going to have consequences for the nation. Because, friends, that's the reality of sin. Is that no matter how often we tend to think of sin as just a personal issue. It's something I'm struggling with, I'm going through, I have this thing that I can't shake. Often our sin has consequences that affect others around us as well. Abimelech realizes that and he pleads his innocence and his integrity and then God speaks. Notice two things. First, notice God's perspective on sin. In verse 6, he says, It was I who kept you from sinning against me. Now, if Abimelech had been with Sarah, we would have said, Oh, wow, he sinned against Sarah. We would have said, Yeah, and he sinned against Abraham. He did wrong to both of them. But God shows us here that all our sin is ultimately against God himself. Sometimes one of the ways we minimize our sin, we think of it as less weighty or less egregious, is we minimize it by thinking we just said or did something that someone else was hurt by. Like, I'm not saying it was good, but you know, I just hurt their feelings, or I was unkind to them, or I mistreated them. God's saying, that's true, but there's much more going on here. When we make it sound that way, we can think, yeah, it's not good, but it's not that big a deal. But God doesn't see sin that way. He says all sin is against him. Do you remember when David sinned against Bathsheba and against her husband Uriah? He has an affair and has the husband murdered. I mean, clearly that's against them, right? But what does he say when he confesses in Psalm 51? Against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David got this. He's saying, no matter who gets hurt, at the end of the day, the worst part about my sin is not how it impacted other people, but that it was against holy God. This is a good reminder for us that our sin is never just a personal problem or never just between us and someone else. Every sin we commit is a sin against God. That's one thing. But there's something else we see really clearly in God's words in verses 6 and 7. What we see is that even when things seem like they are spiraling out of control and everything's falling apart, what do we see? God was firmly in control of the whole situation. Look what he says. God says, I know that you've done this in the integrity of your heart. In other words, first of all, Abimelech, yes, I know. I know your heart. I know your motives. I know why you did that. I can see all that. And yeah, you're right. But then he goes on and says, it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Do you hear this? Like, just let that sink in. He's not saying like, yeah, you did a pretty good thing, Abimelech. God said, I did it. 
I sovereignly restrained you. The reason Abimelech didn't sin was because God didn't let him. He sovereignly held him back from touching her. Why? Because he would not let his promises fall. Nothing was going to mess up his purpose to bless Abraham and Sarah, even their own sinfulness and unbelief. All this time, God is saying, I will do whatever it takes. And aren't you so thankful that we have a God who is this strong, this sovereign, that he can and will do whatever it takes to make sure his promises come to pass. When you feel like life is out of control and crazy, this is good to look back at and remember, God is on his throne reigning over every detail of this. Even the stuff that feels like there's no way, God will somehow work all of it for the good of his people. Then in verse 7, God commands Abimelech to return Sarah to Abraham. This is, this is really helpful because God requires repentance here. He says, yeah, I know you didn't know that she was his wife. Yeah, I, I know you weren't intending to do these things, but you did, and so now you need to repent. And he requires repentance in order to test Abimelech's sincerity in wanting to do the right thing. Because Abimelech could come and say all the right things, like, oh, I didn't mean to, like, it was totally an accident, they didn't tell me. But if he doesn't take concrete steps to change his behavior then, it'll all be just a show. So God requires him to make it right by returning Sarah. But that's not all he says. Look at verse 7. God says, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. This is, this is really fascinating here, that God calls Abraham a prophet. This is the first use of that word in the Bible. Prophets haven't been mentioned yet. And what we're struck by here is not that the word prophet shows up, but who it's attached to. Abraham. Abraham here in our passage is appointed a prophet. Abraham, the fearful saint who keeps falling back into his old sins. Abraham, the guy who keeps screwing one thing up after another. And why is this significant? Because we're left with no other possibility than to conclude Abraham's appointment as a prophet is based only on grace and not on his merit. Abraham has done nothing heroic, nothing valiant. God's not pointing at him and saying, see my servant Abraham who is so virtuous and exemplary. He is my prophet. He's like, this dude just lied to me about his wife so that I almost committed adultery and he's your prophet? He says, yes. In the midst of his stumbling, God chooses Abraham to be the means to minister to Abimelech. This is such good news for us because in the same way, Christians are ambassadors for Christ only by God's gracious appointment, not because we deserve it. None of us has done well enough. God hasn't been overseeing the church rosters saying, ooh, that one's got potential. Ooh, I think there's something promising there. He appoints us in the midst of our weakness and our faltering and our stumbling. And in the midst of our struggles and sins, God still chooses to use us to minister to other people. This is crazy. And just like Abraham, in our God-given role, not as prophets, but as his ambassadors, as his church, we have a job to do like him. Just like Abraham, we are called to pray for others. Don't miss this. This is, 
this is huge to understanding something about prayer. Do you see that God intended all along to heal Abimelech? That was his plan. But he chose to do it through the means of Abraham's prayer. He didn't need that extra step. God could have just skipped that and said, okay, I understand you didn't mean to. You return his wife, I'll heal you. But he says, no, no, return his wife so that he will pray for you and then in response to his prayer, I'll heal you. God insisted on prayer being a part of this. Why? Because God delights in working through the prayers of his people so that when he does it, we know that was God. He ordained that his works would happen through our prayers. In fact, hear this. The greatest work you'll ever do in your life will not be at your job. It will be on your knees. You will accomplish far greater things in this lifetime in prayer than you will through no matter what your job is. Do you want to change the world? Pray. What if I told you that tonight, by spending just one hour, you could oppose injustice in the world? You could strengthen churches. You could protect missionaries. You could see persecutors become brothers and sisters. You could see the gospel advance in some of the darkest corners of the world. You can through prayer. So come, pray. Because like Abraham, God wants to work. There are things God intends to accomplish only through the prayers of his people. He could have just healed Abimelech, but he said, no, I'm only going to do it through the prayers of Abraham. And hear this. God could just help the persecuted church. He could just sustain and strengthen them, but he wants to do it through the prayers of his people. It's his God-appointed means to that end. So come pray. All right, then in verse 8, we see Abimelech's response to God's words. After his dream, we read in verse 8 that he rose early in the morning, called all his servants, told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. That's a good response. They were rightly terrified. And then in their fear, the king calls Abraham, and we have our second conversation in verses 9 to 13. And when he calls Abraham... The king wants to know, why? Why would you do this, Abraham? Like, what did I do to you, is, is what he's saying. What have I done that would cause you to put me and all my kingdom in such danger? Why would you do these things that ought not to be done? What did you see? In verses 11 to 13, then, Abraham gives three excuses for his actions. And they're all weak and sorry. So let's look at him. First, in verse 11, he says, I did it because I thought, there's no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. In other words, he said, I did it because I was afraid. He feared what people would do to him. Now, what's ironic here is that he thought, he looked out and he says, oh, there's no fear of God here. Yet what did we see in verse 8? The king and his servants all feared God when they found out what happened. In fact, these pagan people feared God more than Abraham did because Abraham feared the people more than he feared God. And Abraham's choices and actions were shaped not by trusting God's ability to help him, but by fear of his circumstances. Abraham knew what God had promised, 
Like, he just had God show up and say, I'm going to give you a son in a year through Sarah. But he thought, hmm, it doesn't look like it. God, the only way I'm going to get what you promised is if I, if I give you a little help here. Like, I, I kind of believe you, but it looks like in this situation, I need to kind of bend this rule or do this over here in order for these promises to come. What we see is that fear drove Abraham right back to his old sinful habits. Then he goes on in verse 12 and gives a second excuse. He says, Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. This, man, we can relate to this so well here. This is Abraham rationalizing his sin. This is the excuse of technically, right? He's saying technically she is my sister. He's trying to defend his actions by explaining it's not quite as bad as what it seems. Like, I know it sounds bad, but hear me out. You see, actually it was only kind of not right. I mean, I guess it was wrong, sort of, but, but sort of not, right? And don't we play that game in our hearts? We're like, yeah, I know that probably, I shouldn't have probably done that, but, but you know, there was this thing. So is it wrong? Hmm. Right? It's not a full-throated, I messed up. Instead, it's more of a, actually. But then the kicker is verse 13. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Now, did you catch it here? It kind of slips right in there, but Abraham essentially blames God here. When God caused me to wander, Abraham is basically saying, well, when God put me in this situation, I had to do something. I mean, if I didn't have to wander the way, you know, God put me into this lifestyle, roaming here and there, there's dangers that accompany that. I don't know, maybe God didn't foresee that, but he put me in these really hard circumstances and these challenging situations and something had to be done, so I had to do what I did. And what did he do? He made this whole pretend you're my sister thing his go-to plan wherever they went. That's what he says here. Now, we only have two of those times recorded, but Abraham's claiming that this was his standard operating procedure. Whenever he gets into a situation where he feels afraid and worried, things are new and uncertain, he defaults back into deception and trying to do things his way rather than trusting the Lord to take care of him. He's doing it intentionally. He's planning that. Whenever we get somewhere scary and I'm afraid, lie. Are we clear? Okay, good. This repeated pattern of sin is what you might have heard this term. It's what we call a besetting sin. A besetting sin is just an old-fashioned way of talking about a particular sin or kind of sin that we find ourselves going back to over and over and over again. They're the sins that make you say, I can't believe I did that again. Again, a good way to think about these is you know how water will always take the path of least resistance? If it's flowing downhill, it will run in the easiest places for it to go. Usually you'll find these little ruts in the ground that have been worn there by other water flowing that way over and over again through the years. So it doesn't just go a straight line. It kind of meanders until it finds the easiest way down, until it finds those ruts. Well, guess what? We have those ruts in our heart. 
ways of acting that come most easily to us because that's the way we've acted for so long over and over. Those ruts are our besetting sins. And they're different for each one of us. We each have our own. But they're the sins that we go to most easily, especially when we're frightened or struggling. And they're also the ones that are hardest for us to shake. We tell ourselves every time, I'm not going to do that ever again. I'm not going to that website. I'm not going to let my anger come out like that ever again. I'm not going to talk that way about that person anymore. Not again. And then it happens again. And just like Abraham, so many times our besetting sins are linked to our fears. When things get hard or scary or challenging or stressful, we're tempted to stop trusting God to take care of us and instead look to one of our favorite sins to help us, to protect us, to satisfy us. Why do you think the most oft-repeated command in the Bible is, fear not? It's because we are so prone to fear and to forget who God is and what he's promised to do. That's why the Bible tells us over and over and over again, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Why? Because we forget and run to our besetting sin over and over and over again. So what do we do with these besetting sins? I was really helped this week, and I wanted to share this with you. Uh, A pastor named Kevin DeYoung had four steps, four quick bullet points here. What do you do with those besetting sins, those ruts in your heart that you just find yourself going back to again and again? Four R words. One, recognize. Recognize the pattern. And when you start to go down that path, just make a note, say, oh, here we go. I've done this before. I've been here. I I see this. Here we go again. Okay, I know what I'm dealing with. Two, remember how it turned out before. And that could mean one of two things, right? It could mean either remember, okay, last time I thought it was going to be horrible and I was scared and terrified, but you know what? God actually helped me out. It wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. Or it could mean, you know, last time I felt this way, I did panic, I gave in to my sin, and I went down that road, and it did not end well. Remember. So recognize a pattern. Remember how it turned out. Third, realize you have a choice. Contrary to what you might hear in the world, you are not controlled by your circumstances. You're not controlled by your genes or your feelings or your biology or anything else. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in you And you are no longer a slave to sin. You can choose not to sin. So recognize, remember, realize, and forth, respond in faith. Asking God to help you. I found that really helpful. I hope hope that helps you this week. See, Abraham's problem and ours is that while we trust God in general, when we're feeling stressed and worried and we have needs that must be met, we start to waver in our faith. And we start to wonder, Will God actually take care of me in this? Not abstractly, but today with what I'm facing. Will God help me now? And when you're feeling that, and when you're afraid, do you know where to look? I hope so. We look to the cross. Because on the cross, God provided our greatest need we will ever have. 
So we look at the cross, and you know what we say? We say, here is love. Here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood. Because here at the cross, that's where we see how much God loves us, how powerful he is to help us, and how good he is to provide for us. There on the cross, he gave us a savior to pay for our sin. He gave us forgiveness. He gave us acceptance into his family. He gave us new life in him, a new life that doesn't end when the heart monitor goes flat. He gave us power to get out of the ruts of besetting sins and to be changed more and more to be like Jesus. And God did all of that by giving us the most valuable treasure in existence, the most difficult thing anyone anywhere has ever had to give. He did it by giving us his own son. Now at this point you say, Yes, pastor, I know, that's great and all, but how does that help me with what I'm going through? It's not so much sin that I'm worried about. I know God gave Jesus so my sins could be forgiven, but what does that have to do with the struggle that I'm facing right now today? Here's what it has to do. Romans 8, 32. Because he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Friends, the cross is our rock-solid proof that God will give us anything we need. You say, I don't know. This is a big one. He gave you his son. If he'll give you the greatest treasure in the world, if you ask for a, if he gave you a billion dollars and you say, I'm, I'm reluctant to ask for five bucks. We say, that's crazy. And that's what God is trying to get through to us. He's saying, I didn't hold back my son. There's no way I'm going to hold back something smaller. So when we're afraid, we're meant to look back to the cross over and over and over. And every time you look to hear our Father say, fear not, I will graciously give you all things. The cross helps us not just trust God for the pardon of our sins, but for the provision of every need. Finally, in our last section, we see the outcome of this episode with Abimelech. Abimelech returns Sarah to Abraham and gives Abraham three kinds of gifts. Verse 14, he gives him possessions, livestock and servants. In verse 15, he gives him land. And in verse 16, he gives him a boatload of money. It's an amount that one commentator said would take 150 years for a typical worker to earn. And did you notice, this is just for fun, did you notice the little dig Abimelech gives in verse 16? As he's returning them, as he's giving the money, he tells Sarah, I'm giving this money to Abraham, your brother. <laughs> he knows it's his, she knows it's his husband, her, her husband. He's like, I just want to make clear, your brother. Okay. But what's important about these gifts is not so much what they were, but why Abimelech gave them. What does he say to Sarah in verse 16? It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you and before everyone you are vindicated. In other words, this would have made it crystal clear to everyone and anyone that nothing impure happened between Abimelech and Sarah. This was an indisputable public guarantee they had not been together. Okay, why is that such a big deal? Well, if you peeked ahead to next week in chapter 21, guess what comes next week? Isaac. 
And with a son coming soon, it had to be absolutely certain that the child was Abraham's and not someone else's. And so these gifts testify to that fact that nobody could say, oh, that's interesting, the timing of that son being born. I wonder, everyone say, no chance. Not with these kind of gifts given. They are testimony that nothing happened between Abimelech and Sarah. And don't miss the fact that yet again, just like in chapter 12, despite Abraham's sin, God works the whole situation for his good. In spite of Abraham's fears and failings, God blesses him by protecting him and his family and showering him with good things he didn't deserve. Why? Because that's just who our God is. A God gracious and merciful. A God who loves us and loves to give good gifts to his children even when we fail. The passage ends then with Abraham praying for Abimelech as God had told him. And God healed Abimelech and all the women in his household. We find out here that when Sarah was brought into the house, God had sovereignly closed the wombs of all the women. That word for closing the wombs is the same word that Sarah used back in chapter 16 describing herself when she said, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children or he's closed my womb. So now imagine... What's going through Abraham and Sarah's minds when they see God heal and open the wombs of all these women in response to Abraham's prayer? Don't you think there's a part of them that says, hmm, God did it for all of those women. Surely he can do it for Sarah, right? So we're left at the end of the chapter with Abraham's hope being renewed and strengthened because in spite of his persistent sin, God's sovereign promises still stood and nothing would stand in the way of God keeping his word to bless him. Not even the weak faith and besetting sins of his struggling saint.